Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. After World War II, America's religious denominations spent billions on church architecture as they spread into the suburbs. Gretchen Bigelin's latest monograph, The Suburban Church, is a richly illustrated history of mid-century churches in the mid Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. After World War II, America's religious denominations spent billions on church architecture as they spread into the suburbs. Gretchen Bigelin's latest monograph, The Suburban Church, is a richly illustrated history of mid-century churches in the Midwest that shows how architects and suburban congregations joined forces to create a new wave of modernist churches to reflect and shape developments in post-war religion, its ecumenism, optimism, and liturgical innovation, as well as its fears about staying relevant during a time of vast cultural, social, and demographic change. Gretchen Bigelin is speaking to us from Valparaiso University, where she holds the Phyllis and Richard Duesenberg Chair in Christianity and the Arts. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Hillary. This is fun. I'm excited to speak, especially about these suburban churches, because I certainly, as someone who grew up in the suburbs, am very familiar with these, and I think a fair number of our listeners will be too. First, I wanted to ask you how you initially became interested in the intersection of architecture and religion going way back when. Let's see, I was a history major in college, so pretty traditional history Although towards the end of my college years, I interned at Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, excuse me, and I got really interested in the ability of objects, the built environment, uh, to tell stories of history. So my immediate next move after college was to go to a museum studies graduate program and really liked that and anticipated a museum career. When I finished that two-year program, I worked for a short while in museums and then went back to graduate school thinking still about that that um, trajectory of studying objects. Actually, I was interested in consumer culture at the time. Uh, but then the university I went to, which was Yale University for American Studies, happened to have this kind of lively group of younger scholars who were looking at American religion from a more social history perspective, I guess, a much broader perspective than scholars had typically brought, I think, in previous years to the study of religion and its institutions. And um, so I started taking classes in American religion also, along with my other material culture and American studies classes. And sooner or later, those two things came together. And at that point, this was the late 80s, and there really wasn't much of a bibliography in the material culture of religion, except in the field of anthropology, of course. But in American studies and American history, we didn't really have that. So it was kind of exciting to be in somewhat new territory. And the biggest, most important artifacts of religion on the American landscape are 
buildings, naturally. So those things came together, and my dissertation was about uh, early 19th century churches in New England. So that was the origin of my interest in uh, vernacular buildings, common buildings, and uh, religious culture. So I was curious, given that precisely your earlier work was really the 18th and 19th centuries. So I was curious, how did you come to this project on the post-war suburbs? What drew you in? Oh, gosh, it was all about um, proximity. So I came to this university, Valparaiso University, in 2004. And uh, my students, we I teach a class called The American Home. And this class, uh, usually we do a case study of a building just to get students familiar with how you, how a historian looks at architecture. And uh, the building we chose was a 1950s house on campus that had been a president's house. And when we looked at this house, uh, realized that the architect, a man named Charles Stade, was also the architect of a 1950s chapel on campus, an enormous chapel, by some accounts, one of the three largest university chapels in the world. And it was a, a curious building to me. Nothing I'd never seen anything that looked like this. This is a problem with the radio show, right? I can't show pictures. But uh, this building was unlike anything that I'd seen anywhere else and also designed by Stodic. And it was something that intrigued me. And I started asking questions on campus, realized that this architect had done five or six buildings on our campus in the post-war expansion years. And most people didn't know his name and certainly didn't know anything about him. So a few years later, I had a small grant just to try to find out more about Charles Stade and try to locate his buildings. He died in 1993, and none of the records from the firm had survived but uh, I did some newspaper research and talked to people in churches who referred me to other churches. And so I found out that his, the majority, the, the great majority of his output from his office in the 1950s was uh, the suburban church, hundreds of these buildings. So when I traveled around to look at these churches, um, thinking, okay, what do I do with this information? Will I just write a short article about this architect kind of for the local community? Or will I take this further and, and think more about modern religious architecture in this period? And I love to talk to people in congregations. So when I was doing field work on the buildings, I would sit down and talk to pastors or church secretaries or folks who had been in those congregations for a while, and they started telling me their stories about the post-war years of these churches. And in those conversations, I realized that something had happened in these places that was very different from the stereotypical view of the suburban church that many of us, probably most of us have in in the post-war years, but also in the present. Meanwhile, I found myself actually being intrigued by modernism, 
this kind of common modernism, not buildings that make it into the architectural history canon, but things that were all over on the landscape, things that, uh, structures that people just didn't pay attention to because they were so ubiquitous. So I could, I don't want to make this story too long, but I started thinking as a cultural historian, what are the questions here that are most interesting and how can I construct a study so that I'm buildings are really at the center of what I'm doing, field work, understanding design, understanding construction, but using those material things as a way into telling perhaps a different story about what happened in these suburban churches. One of the things that I think is so compelling about the book is what you, you put it very nicely, I think, in the introduction when you say that sometimes when people look at these suburban churches, they say, what were they thinking? But then you actually took that and you took it very seriously and you said, that's right. What were they thinking? I mean, what were these communities thinking in the late 1940s and early 1950s when they were making actually rather radical decisions about creating new kinds of buildings? So on that note, I wanted to ask you to give us a little bit more insight into these moments, those late 1940s, early 50s, likely all of our listeners know or anyway think they know something about the suburbs. But take us back for a moment to these suburban pioneers after the war. Who were they? Why were they moving there? Uh, what were these communities like? How are they being shaped? Sure. I, I, I want to say, first of all, that because my study was based in architecture and oral histories that I interviewed close to a 100 people for this book who graciously shared their stories with me, dug deep into their memories to remember the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, But by and large, of course, these are people who stay connected to these institutions, to these churches. So I do want this this caveat that when I tell these stories, now or in the book, I'm talking about people who are invested enough in in those communities, in the Christian faith, in these places to have stuck around. And that that does kind of skew my um, database, which I acknowledge in this book. Um, but that said, uh, so these people are moving to the suburbs um, starting right after World War II. We've heard the stories about the boom towns like Levittown. I have a chapter in this book on Park Forest, Illinois, which is Chicago's version of Levittown, where in the late 1940s it's cornfields and a golf course. And by 1952 or 1953, there are close to 30,000 people living in this brand-new community. That's that's a, a, a kind of case where things happen very, very quickly all at once. But suburban development happened because people could not find housing in the cities. I think uh, one of the things that's always at the back of the story is white flight to the suburbs. And I certainly wouldn't say that fleeing crime, uh, fleeing uh, situations that seem uncomfortable or dangerous uh, racism certainly a part of this, but I first of all, 
it was simply a matter of housing. As one one fellow told me who moved to Park Forest, we tried to find a place in Chicago, but uh, we could find an apartment where they would take pets, but we couldn't find apartments where they would take children, and we were all having children, and there was simply a, a lack of units for millions of Americans who were um, trying to get their family started and, and get a foothold in new communities. Um, and then there was the, the delay of the war, certainly. So young people who uh, put their marriages and their child rearing and their jobs on hold to participate in the war effort uh, went about those sorts of things with gusto once the war ended. So you have this mass of people who need to get settled. Um, a problem with finding houses in cities and builders responding to that by building less expensive suburban single-family homes, also um, townhomes, what we call townhomes now, so rental units, and taking advantage of that consumer. You mentioned a number of times, even in the 1950s, that these suburbs were coming under some fire, especially from intellectuals and academics. Um, on the other hand, some people were seeing them as the, the wave of the future in a positive sense. What are some of the ways that the suburbs have been characterized? And do you find that that's starting to change in academic work on the subject, or has it remained relatively stable? That's a great question, and it's definitely changing with uh, scholars who are looking at places like Levittown or the the suburbs in general and, and realizing these were hardly one-dimensional communities. Life there was complex, as human life always is. Uh, looking, re-looking at questions like race, trying to get the details of whatever integration happened and what the conflicts were along with that. Um, looking at different structures that were built in the suburbs. So not just looking at housing, which had been the first wave of the scholarship, but looking at the building of schools, looking at government buildings and shopping centers, and thinking about the whole built environment in that suburb and and complicating things, looking at what the Jewish experience was in the suburbs, looking at how different ethnic groups reacted to each other, looking at uh, politics and how that played out in the suburbs. But I, I think still that religion has resisted for some reason this kind of um, reinvestigation. I, uh, even in recent work, you still find these suburban churches referred to as country club churches, as if they were purely social institutions that didn't have a spiritual vision for those communities, that is anything we want to attend to at this point, at least. And as you also mentioned, the idea that suburbia is sort of this bland and conformist place, this book really shows us that, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm, I'm simply using your words, but <laughs> that people in the suburbs were actually making rather radical decisions about the churches that they wanted to build, if you compare it to the churches that they might have known in urban environments. So that certainly allows us to think about these church communities a little bit differently. Yeah, one of the things that didn't occur to me when I started this research and wondered what were they thinking, uh, one of the things that 
that is sort of one of those duh, aha moments when I started looking at the composition of congregations and building committees was that these were extremely young people compared to the average building committee in a more established congregation. So these are people who are not set in their ways. They're in their early 30s. They're taking on projects that are far beyond their experience. They're excited about the future. They, A lot of them have had experience in wartime with ecumenical Protestant groups, thinking across denominational lines, thinking about religion and community in very different ways, and bringing those new ideas and that energy to the suburbs. And one of the things, I, I wish I could say this definitively because um, I'd like to, although at this point it's more of a tentative understanding that I have from this particular research, is that that 1950s generation of suburban pioneer, as they called themselves, is pretty different from what you get even a decade or certainly two decades later. I mean, these are folks who grew up in cities, some of them, but a lot of them are also coming from small towns and very excited about these new communities and the path-breaking things that they were going to do there. So they weren't, it wasn't nostalgic in the sense of escapism. It was very forward-looking and positive about what they could do for their families and for their neighbors in these new communities. You focused the book really around the work of three architects who are all working in the Midwest, Edward Dart, Edward Sovic, and Charles Staddy, who you just mentioned a moment ago. Um, why did you make that decision? Why focus on those three in particular, and what were they able to offer this project? Good question. All right. Uh, so I started looking at Stade, and I realized that he was probably what, what we might call a second-tier architect. He wasn't one of the great remembered architects of that period, although he was known nationally in that period as a very fine church architect through his involvement in various architectural organizations. So, But as I was studying him, I realized He's designing mostly for Lutherans because he's a Lutheran and these architects are connected to their own denominations. Uh, so there wouldn't be enough of a book just to talk about Stade. I was starting to see a gap in the research in architecture in general in these post-war years uh, on the, the regional aspects of architecture. So I had decided, and also, frankly, for just logistical reasons, to focus on this area of the Midwest. So kind of the Great Lakes, Minneapolis to Indianapolis reach of um, states and cities. And then I thought, well, I'm also really interested in the interchange the exchanges between architects and their clients. So I didn't want to do a study that just kind of cherry-picked buildings and architects because I, I liked those places that they designed, but I wanted to look at the development within the life work of particular architects so that I could see, for instance, um, imagine two buildings. You have the same architect, let's say Charles Stade. He designs 
a building in Deerfield, Illinois, and he designs a building in Winnetka. They're both A-frame churches, but his congregations are very different. They're different kinds of places. They have different financial resources. So how do those demographics and even the character of those congregations affect the way that this architect can work with them? and what that eventual product can be. So I was trying to be really attentive to place, that's the Midwest, and these relationships between architects and congregations, how the architects moved the congregations perhaps to a different way of thinking about church architecture, especially as they were convincing them that modernism was the way to go, the the only proper architecture for churches in the post-war years. So I was thinking about uh, also the effect that the congregations had on the architects. How did congregations, in fact, shape the way the architects thought about space? Because that's a direction that we don't often think about when we're architectural historians, on how the design itself is shaped by the client. So I had... uh, Charles Stade already, and then I started looking for other architects like him. That is, architects who weren't just doing churches because they were trying to make a buck, but actually had some kind of investment in what it meant to design a church for a suburban congregation. And also architects who left some kind of a reasonable paper trail. So that led me to Edward Sovic, who was... I would argue the most articulate church architect in America in this time, wrote a lot, read a lot, both of which are unusual for architects. And he was still alive, so I had wonderful conversations with him, and that was a real uh, benefit, joy, in fact, of this project. Then the third architect I chose, Edward Dart, was because he he did, um, for instance, uh, one of – a classic Chicago skyscraper water tower place. That was one of the last buildings of his career. And he was known for these more monumental buildings, but he did a few dozen parish churches as well, as well. really stunning little buildings, not all of them, but, but he worked well with congregations on extremely limited budgets. And he also worked with a lot of, American Episcopal congregation, so it's a different tradition as well. So I had two Lutheran architects, Sovic and Stade, and the Episcopalian Edward Dart. That is no accident because those were two denominations that were embracing modernism in church design with uh, some gusto in that period. So that, that was also factoring into that. I wanted to return to what you were saying about the clients also shaping or the communities also sort of shaping the way that these architects were working and were able to work. Can you walk us through the life of a seven day a week church in the Midwestern suburbs in this period? I mean, what sorts of activities and needs did the congregations have? And I think that'll give us also a good sense of some of the challenges that the architects were up against. Hillary mentioned the seven-day-a-week church. That's a term that predates this period, but it took on a pretty wide meaning in this period and indicates, as is obvious, that this is a place that's busy all the time. These are not uh, 
plants, they called them church plants, which was the uh, sanctuary, but also the offices, the educational facilities, and the social facilities. These were not places that were just for the weekend. There was a large a variety of events going on during the week. Um, for instance, uh, um, these are, let me back up a little bit first. Um, so not only is it the seven-day-a-week church, but it's also a church that's very oriented around family and also very oriented to the idea that every age group in that congregation, from seniors down to infants, has its own needs in the context of the church community. So programs for mothers and young children, but also programs for seniors, programs for youth. This is the beginning of the world of the, the church youth group with the youth pastor having its a room in the basement of the church with ping pong tables and old couches and moving towards that certainly by the 1960s. So a lot of youth activities, other things that, that kind of straddled the line between the sacred and the secular, like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, uh, reading groups. Groups would get together to discuss politics, to discuss great books. Some of them had... Athletic facilities, although not as many as you would think, that's really more the legacy of the pre-war church, these large urban churches that had really extensive athletic facilities. These post-war churches, one of the important things to say about them is they did not have a lot of money, especially the brand-new congregations. So they were building just what they thought was most essential and then building on in other phases of the building project. So a gym was a good thing. You could use that for basketball and big church-wide events. Um, so you usually had a stage at one end, so you could do the mother-daughter fashion show and luncheon and Christmas pageants and all those things we think about from the 1950s church. How did these post-war architects and the communities that hired them think about the links between space and objects and things like symbolism, faith, and moral pedagogy? Well, that is uh, something that was debated very much at the time, as you indicated. So it was never a settled question. And then the Lutherans never said churches should look like this. The Catholics never said churches should look like this. There was, in general, a sense that a church needed to be identifiable as a religious building as a church. And I think that's different from, for instance, the megachurch movement now that thinks a church that, and I'm not, this isn't um, a negative thing, this is actually the way that they would talk about it, but thinks that uh, a church that looks like a shopping mall is a good thing because people will be comfortable there and they won't be put off by something that looks like a church. This is not the way people in the 1950s were thinking about it. They wanted buildings to look contemporary and inviting and fresh and new, but also to still signal to people that here was a Christian presence in their communities. So one of the ways that they did this was by signage, of course, also by freestanding sculptural elements like a tower with a cross, and then by the shape of the buildings themselves. And uh, I have a chapter in this book about the A-frame, which is a building that's mostly roof, 
anybody who's got their eyes open in these post-war suburbs has seen endless A-frame churches, also in Canada. In fact, Stade did a number of buildings in Ontario. Um, it's just a very common form worldwide in expanding suburbs for Christian churches. Um, but the debate was about what do you do with symbols in a period where we want things to be fresh? We can't go back to symbols from a previous age because they'll feel stale in our new context. They won't be sapped of meaning. You can't build, these architects would say, a Gothic building with Gothic arches and um, uh, peaked roofs that are, are uh, evocative of this older style of Gothic building because that doesn't speak to our time. But you can still use some of those forms in a way that preserves a sense of the deep history of the Christian tradition, but looks new. And the debates over symbols, for instance, in ironwork or stained glass, uh, were similar in that artists and architects were saying, we can't use the symbols we've had before because they're not fresh. They aren't going to mean things to people because it's they'll just take it in like landscape. It won't cause them to think in new ways about their faith. So they were trying to incorporate symbolism into these buildings in ways that was meaningful but didn't run over the same ground that, in the same way that had been done in the past. Uh, the problem, according to many of these architects, was when you got a kind of program architecture. So building a church in the shape of a triangle because a triangle was the trinity or in the shape of a fish because a fish was a Christian symbol or in the shape of a cross. They thought that was heavy-handed also. And I think that's the influence of, of modernists who are thinking in terms of space that speaks without overt reference to a symbolic form or an icon. I think that it's especially important when we think about the sanctuary spaces and you spend a chapter talking about sanctuaries in particular, which is really the heart of the worship space. So there are sites that obviously hold great importance. Um, how did changing theologies specifically affect the architecture? Are there a few examples that really stand out for you? Definitely. I think over over this period, the 50s and the 60s, what you're getting is a move towards the idea of the gathered church. That's the term that would have been used less so in the 50s. Certainly it's very common by the 60s. And what that means is that parishioners aren't observers. They aren't an audience to the worship service. They are participants in that. This means that smaller churches were a better fit rather than a huge auditorium that fit a thousand people, a small sanctuary that fit several hundred where people could uh, sit in a, a curved rows so they could see each other's faces at the same time that they saw the uh, preparations for the Eucharist, for instance, at in the, the um, chancel area, whatever that was. So there's this idea that we're participants in the liturgy. We're not spectators, how does that happen in architectural space? Well, one 
if that's in fact the idea that people have in mind, you would think that they would throw out the processional church entirely and just start worshiping in folding chairs around a circle. But that doesn't happen, of course, because congregations and architects are also trying to balance a sense of a space as sacred and tradition is a part of that. So this, this is a long, slow movement towards spaces that are flexible and in the round. But little things were done along the way that made the space feel more unified, even though it might still be essentially a basilican or rectangular worship space. For instance, having a chancel area, that area the front of church of a church where you find the altar and the pulpit and perhaps the lectern and maybe the baptistry, that part of the church was still contained somewhat in its own space, but it wasn't set up on a huge platform, you know, six or eight feet up in the air. It was unified under the same roof. Sovic talked a lot about this, that you could create a unified space simply by having a tall roof that was the same height throughout the whole space. And it, it does work if you're in a building like that. No matter which way the seating goes, if the, the roof is high enough and the ceiling encompasses everything, it will feel like a unified space to you. So that was one way that they were thinking about that. Um, but, but again, then the main theological idea, liturgical idea that's going along with this is how do we get people to feel like they are a part of this worship surface, not just spectators? Did you find that there was a difference between liturgical churches like the Lutherans or the Episcopals and non-liturgical ones like Baptists, for example? Well, there is, of course, in doctrine, but not so much in the way that gets played out in space in the 1950s. One of the things that interested me, too, was that the liturgical churches are actually more adventurous with architecture and space than non-liturgical churches, which is counterintuitive, at least it was for me. So I would have thought a congregational church, for instance, would have been very flexible in terms of space, whereas where there was a strict liturgy, space would have stayed um, in familiar patterns. Some people have speculated that this is because, and Martin Marty is one person that raised this idea with me, is that when you had a kind of an anchor of liturgy and you knew that that would be there, regardless of what the space was like, regardless of whether there was a lot of light or not much light or what the what the pastor was wearing or how people were seated, that that liturgy would always be there as an anchor that freed you up to do more with uh, changing, experimenting with the space and with the design of the building. Another thing is that congregationalists, for, in congregationalists, for instance, are deeply tied to an East Coast, a Northeastern, especially American tradition of a Georgian architecture. So their own history is kind of bound up in this classic American red brick, white pillar, rectangular New England meeting house on a hill kind of architecture, and they're reluctant to move away from that. I should say also there's a lot going on right now in this field on modern architecture and uh, uh, congregations in the post-war years. 
but many, many churches that were built during these years were did not look like modern buildings in the sense that we think of them. Many of them were still essentially colonial revival buildings. And there's one very fine dissertation that was by a woman named Dale Dowling, T-O-W-L-I-N-G, at George Washington University about 15 years ago. And I hope at some point that finds its way into a book because she's talking about uh, this colonial tradition and combining that with the heritage of certain denominations and also a, a Cold War conservative mentality and why people would have also pres- preferred that colonial look in a period that they're celebrating American heritage and American freedom vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis the, the threat of communism. Something else that you postulated in the book that I hadn't thought about, but that's really interesting, is the connections that Lutherans, Episcopalians, and Catholics had to Europe as well. So what you mentioned in the book is that perhaps they were also more familiar with the architectural modernism that had already been used in Europe even before the, the Second World War and were a little more innovative in that regard as well. Definitely. The architects that I studied were part of a number of national, international groups. The the architecture group in America that was the most influential is probably the Church Architecture Guild, or later called the Guild of Religious Architecture when it became Interfaith. And they had annual conferences. There was always attention to what was happening in Europe with modern churches where uh, contemporary ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical architecture is being built rapidly in part because of the destruction of the war. So just, just around the area of Köln, Germany, I think there were 300 churches built uh, to replace churches that had been destroyed in that decade or two following World War II. And the modernism, the church architect, the, the modern church architecture movement begins in Europe. You could point to earlier examples such as Frank Lloyd Wright's Unitarian Church in Oak Park, Illinois, which I think is about 1907-1909 as a forerunner of that in America. But really the more influential buildings are in France and Germany and Switzerland in the pre-war years also. So American architects are talking about deliberately saying things like, we are behind Europe. What is wrong with us? We're not forward-looking. We're not um, on, on we're, we're out of it. We're not doing what's really current and important in church architecture. Why are we so conservative in this country? So they're, they're aware that American buildings aren't as modern as European buildings. And as you said, the Lutherans especially are well connected to what's going on with the German church, the Scandinavian churches. They tend to think of the Lutheran communion as something that needs a lot of attention in that period, especially because of what happened to the church in Germany. So I think they are more attentive to that. Certainly the Stadi and Ed Sovic, the two Lutheran architects I studied, I saw Ed Sovic's library and he had a tremendous number of books on the new churches of Europe. Some of these published in 
a German and French and Italian. Stade also had a, a significant library of books, and I, he annotated some of these books and marked pages where he found design ideas that were of interest to him. So I know they were pouring over these publications that alerted them to what was happening in Europe. One of the things that you mentioned before that I want to get back to when we were talking about that quote-unquote seven-day-a-week church, but we were talking about the importance of these different activities for each age group, which probably for a lot of our listeners seems very natural to them, since this is how many churches operate today in the United States. But as you were just pointing out, in fact, this was new and innovative in this period. Uh, So this meant that educational facilities were really highly important. And you write in the book that even sometimes the most important thing to these suburban congregations, how were those educational and meeting spaces designed in new ways? Uh, What were some of the architectural features that many congregations chose for those kinds of spaces outside of the sanctuary? I don't mean to say that there wasn't a thought prior to this period that Christians of different ages needed different facilities and different kinds of educational programs. That wasn't a brand new idea by any means in the post-war period. What was different was the amount of writing that there was, educational philosophy that was really attending to how learners of different ages have different needs. So what you might have thought in the 1930s was that teenagers need programs that meet the needs of teenagers, but those things weren't understood. What those needs were, were understood differently in the 1950s because of educational research where uh, educators were looking at things like how light matters and fresh air and color and sound and the size of spaces relative to each other. So when Sunday school rooms, for instance, were designed in the 1950s, there was a great emphasis on light and fresh air, which you also find in the school buildings at the time. And the 1950s congregations were insistent on this because one of the things they were trying to get away from was the dark, damp church basement where so many Sunday school classes had been offered in the past. And often uh, 19th century buildings would have had a sanctuary and then a parish house that might not even have been physically connected to the sanctuary building. And now we're looking at sprawling complexes, often without basements, on suburban acreage where there aren't even many staircases in the building because stairs are difficult for children and for the elderly. So trying to keep everything physically accessible to all members of a congregation is one thing that changes. But so broad broad hallways, warm, inviting spaces, lots of light, expansive kitchens that open up into big fellowship halls where you could easily assemble several hundred people for Sunday morning coffee, which was becoming more of an institution in this period, and potlucks and church suppers and other kinds of programs. Uh, I think also the tendency to 
prioritize educational facilities is really important in this time. If you think about uh, the post-war years of the baby boom generation, one of the primary things that characterizes them is the vast number of children all at once. And I talked to people in churches where there were literally 1,500 kids in Sunday school and trying to come up with facilities to manage that number of children meant there were often multiple Sunday school hours. Some churches even had three consecutive Sunday school hours because that was the only way they could fit all those kids. Some had school buses parked in the parking lot where they would hold overflow classes. So trying to figure out how to build quickly and cheaply incorporating light and air and easy access and a friendly aesthetic with very little money was difficult. And that is one reason that the education facilities, for instance, especially in these buildings, haven't aged so well. I think the sanctuaries have aged better. Mm -hmm. they, They made space when they needed space. Right. Yeah. And as you said, a lot of the spaces were also flex spaces in a sense that could be used and reused in different kinds of ways as the congregation. Uh, Uh, One of the the hallmarks of these buildings is the accordion screen that Mm -hmm. take a large multipurpose space and make it into six or eight separate classrooms so you could uh, write, just as you're saying, use these spaces for multiple uh, purposes during the week. Those accordion screens, that is something that I remember from my childhood. (laughs) Certainly. And something that you were saying before, actually, that really struck me, one of the images I I loved from the book was, I can't remember which church it's from, but anyway, an image of Sunday school teachers with children, and they're in front of this luminescent window in a Sunday school classroom, planting little plants, and the caption which might be your caption, in fact, but it says about, you know, learning about God's creation through getting your hands in the dirt and, and planting these plants in the sunny Sunday school classroom. And I think that that also gets us back to how the architectural space, whether it's in the educational wings or in the sanctuary, but it connects to these theologies, that vernacular theologies that people held dear and were trying to uh, reproduce in the kinds of buildings that they were constructing. One of the points that I read frequently in the literature of Sunday schools in this period was the idea that God was present everywhere and Christian education could happen everywhere. It wasn't, you didn't need a little fake sanctuary in the children's section of the church. What you needed was to incorporate what we might call God talk now into all the things that kids were doing, whether they were drawing or planting plants or looking out the window or singing, just practicing this idea of uh, the presence of God in all these activities of life. Um, So you would integrate this into things that were on the surface, maybe secular, like the Cub Scouts or the coffee hour. But all these things were intended to be marked with a spiritual sensibility. And this is one of the things that I puzzled over. I don't know that I know the answer to this, but we often say that these were, as I said, country club churches so that you took religion 
and you domesticated it into something that was simply a social club. But what I'm wondering is what about if you're in a space where you also worship that is also a, a space where you engage in fellowship with other people in your community, maybe you're having a mother-daughter tea, but simply by being in that space, does it secularize the space or does it spiritualize the activity? And I think I was leaning more towards, well, I think it spiritualizes the activity. If, if anything, just as a corrective for the way that we've often thought about it, how these activities worked in those spaces. Mm, that's fascinating. And on a larger scale, we could say that there's something similar happening as the architects of these large suburban communities are insisting that there needs to be land set aside for churches and synagogues and houses of wor- worship within the larger community, because the idea is that the community needs that kind of moral framework which I will use as a segue to my next question about Park Forest. Uh, yes. you, you mentioned it towards the beginning of our conversation, but I, I wanted to circle back to it because it's an, a really interesting chapter um, where you focus on this quintessential suburb outside of Chicago, which was also uh, notably the laboratory for William White's organization, Man. What did you find by focusing on one suburb as a whole? And what did that add to your study of these particular architects and their church commissions? Well, I I went to Park Forest first um, because two of my architects had done buildings there. So I I knew nothing about Park Forest. I didn't know we had this community like this south of Chicago, which is about an hour from where I live here in Valparaiso. I had no idea. And part of that is because of the subsequent history of Park Forest, which hasn't been always positive, um, kind of declined for a variety of reasons, although it's still a vital community and a lot of great folks trying to make a life there. Uh, but when I got there and I looked around the community, I thought, you know, I need to do one case study, one community case study as part of this book, because that way I can look at a whole community rather than just following these three architects and also look at the way religious groups are interacting with each other in one place, which is something that I hadn't seen so much of just on the trail of particular architects. And in this community, there was not only uh, Protestant churches, but a Catholic church, There was a Christian science church. There was a Unitarian fellowship. But uh, important to what I wanted to say about the suburbs, there were also some Jewish congregations. And the developer himself, Philip Klutznik, was a a Jew who cared a lot about the religious presence in his communities. So this wasn't always the case, but in many communities, land was set aside for the use of religious groups if they built within a certain amount of time. It wasn't always the best land, but it was land that was available, and it was usually done in a way that that this land was given in a way that spread these congregations out geographically within the community. Uh, so I did find that there were similarities between denominations, between Jews and Christians, and within the Christian denominations, especially in the way they were thinking about the social 
life of their organizations. So when I walked into this building was a little bit later, it was um, one of the synagogues, not the first one, but the second one. When I walked into that Sunday school and kitchen area, it could have been a Protestant church. There wasn't anything there that told me that it was a, a building that was used by a Jewish congregation. And that's been true for other post-war synagogues that I've been in. Uh, but, of course, the synagogue space itself is very different. So one of the things I found was that the social spaces are similar and they're affecting each other in curious ways. Christian science practice, for instance, usually doesn't have fellowship areas. But there in Park Forest, because everybody else was having potlucks, they used uh, the elementary schools, the intermediate schools in the community to have these kinds of social activities. So there you have denominations affecting each other in terms of their social practice. Another thing I found was that there was a lot of ecumenical spirit. And a lot of that came out of the war. So people were still attached to denominations to varying degrees. I think denominations that had had a hard time fighting for their right to be different in the past continued to hold pretty tightly to that identity. In part four, that was true for the Baptists and also for the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. On the other hand, there was this remarkable movement there called the United Protestant Movement where the Protestants got together at the beginning of the founding of the town and they couldn't get enough support from individual denominations, not because the denominations didn't care, but they were pretty stretched in all these new suburbs. And they decided they would build churches that would serve people of different Protestant denominations. So there was a Lutheran church, an Episcopal church, the liturgical churches, but uh, the Presbyterians and the congregation, well, not the Congregationalists, but the Evangelical and Reformed, um, different Protestant groups, the Methodists, they got together and created four what they called United Protestant Churches, and they built buildings, and they called a pastor that represented one particular denomination. So the first one, which was eventually called Faith United Church, had members from all different denominations. And actually, I, I can't verify this, but I was told by some of the older people that there were even Jewish people in the community who would come to their activities uh, because it was uh, an open kind of community in that sense. Uh, but if you, it wasn't a community church in the way that we think of it now. It was a church where you could still maintain some of your denominational identity. So I could go to Faith United Protestant Church, which was where the pastor was evangelical and reformed. But if I wanted a Presbyterian wedding service, I could do that in that space. So they, they thought of it more as an umbrella that took in people of different Protestant faiths and made one community out of them in the same way that uh, fellowship groups in the military had done, or even uh, in universities and colleges. So those were, so this ecumenical spirit, the similarity of the social spaces, differences that persisted in the worship spaces, according to uh, practices and character of congregation, those are the three things that I, I noticed while looking at all these congregations together. 
Uh, what I learned about the architects in the process, I think that was the second half of your question, was that looking at these buildings, I can see, knowing something more about that community, I can see how the architects and the congregations are working together to make the kind of statement that they wanted to make in this place. For instance, the Episcopal congregation there, which was... Um, at that point, fairly high church. They kind of, they, they made a claim to that. They were more high church than the Catholic congregation there. And when they built a church, it was contemporary. This was uh, Edward Dart building from 1959. It was a rectangular base, but the superstructure was in the form of a cross, deep eaves, dark inside. They talked about uh, creating an atmosphere of worship that would want you to kneel in prayer before the altar. And uh, the United Protestants weren't talking about space this way, but these Episcopalians were, and they were very conscious of the role of art and mystery in the, the performance of the liturgy. And Estade built them a building that answered that need but that building is not like other buildings that, I'm sorry, DART, I think I said study. DART built them a building that was unlike other buildings that DART built elsewhere. One of the things about this book that I find wonderful, and I know all of our listeners will pick it up and will find it just as wonderful, is that you both manage through the images and obviously the text as well, but you both managed to show us some of the similarities between these different congregations, but also, as you were just pointing out, the fact that although on the surface we may think of these suburban congregations as conformist or we might think of them as simply an undifferentiated mass, that in fact these various buildings spoke to very particular decisions that their congregations were making and even within a suburban space, or perhaps especially within a suburban space, they were being differentiated one from the other. And this book really brings that out. I'm wondering what you're working on now. Or are you going to keep driving around the Midwest looking at <laughs> churches? Or do you have something else that you're working on? Well, I do like to drive around and look at stuff. I don't think I'll give that up. I tell my kids that's why I became an architectural historian, so I can justify driving around and looking at buildings. Um, <laughs> but I have Two projects. One is is uh, not directly related to this at all. Before I came to Valparaiso, I was working at a museum and I was looking at religion and material culture, but more in the context of what museums do. So how objects are religious objects are used to tell the story of religion in museums, different traditions, and also. Uh, just how how museums can help to open up dialogue about religion and interfaith conversations, especially in contemporary cultures. So I'm working on a few co-edited projects, one of these called Religion and Museums. I've co-edited with Crispin Payne, who's based in London, and Brent Plate, who's based in uh I'm going to say New York, although he's been in Spain recently. And that book is coming out from Bloomsbury in April. And then um, another book, the American Association of State and Local History has a series called Interpreting X at Museums and Historic Sites. And two colleagues and I are working on the Interpreting 
religion and museums and historic sites volumes. So those are the two things that are really quite different. And then I think if I continue to work on the material culture of religion in this period, what I what I'm aiming towards is writing something about the liturgical arts in this period. This is something that fascinated me as I went to churches and looked at these spaces, the way that artists and architects had worked together to paint the walls, to weave textiles, to provide sculpture. And this is a tremendously understudied aspect of post-war religion, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. So I'm hoping to work on that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us a little bit about it today. And everyone who's listening should certainly go and pick up the Suburban Church. The subhead is Modernism and Community in Postwar America out with Minnesota University Press. And it has beautiful, beautiful pictures. So our conversation certainly does not do it justice. Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much, Hillary. I really enjoyed our conversation.